0: sickly weirdos this is historical af i'm natalie and i'm kina the sickly weirdo
1: and we are a historian and a librarian delivering you the funny weird spooky and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes i i have cold brain sorry
0: and in those holes that <laughs> for that cold brain is uh diseases part dose this is episode 42 bitches
1: 42! Oh, man, we're getting so close to 50! What are we going to do for 50? Tell us what to do
0: on 50! Yeah, because we don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but we want to do something special. I know we want to do something. Just don't know what. So, email us, send us a message, whatever you want to do. But tell us what we should do for 50. Yeah. Oh, we've made it! And also, <laughs> it's really
1: exciting, we got mail for the first time on our P.O. box. We got a
0: postcard from Finland. Fucking Finland, guys. I know. I want that postcard <laughs> 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 to add it to my collection. I love it so much.
1: Yeah. It's and so cool. We got a book. It's the haunted restaurants, taverns, and inns of Texas from Repot. And it is so fucking cool. And uh, I've already like every town I go to I flip to see what's in it. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> go drive by it. <laughs> Although Sakine didn't have any, so that sucked. But New Brambles had, like, three, so... Okay. Did a drive-by of all those three.
0: I really hope someone doesn't hear that out of context. <laughs> no, I did a drive-by.
1: Ugh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Words matter, Akina. Words matter. That's why they're hard. <laughs> they are hard. <laughs> well, so many tweeted us, In the words of Historical AF Pod, words are hard. I was like, Natalie, we've made it. <laughs> That's how you know.
0: How you we didn't know, know. before, we knew now. It's official.
1: <sighs> When people can't word, they think
0: of us. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> you know, I, there can be worse things that represents me, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> no, it's, uh, we said sickly, I've
1: been all sniffly. We just did our mini gab. I was just like, oh my god, I'm dying. It's fine. I got too cocky. I was like, I'm not gonna get sick this year. It's fine. And then I woke up with a cold. I'm like I hate, I hate it. I flew too close to the sun. AKA, I went to the gym and there's germs. I was gonna say there's that Jersey.
0: sun's the <laughs> <a> gym. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like <sighs> super sick to everything, coughing and sneezing and touching everything. And right now it's like the busiest time because everyone's attempting their New Year resolution. Yeah,
1: it's been very busy, so I've been impressed, because usually by the end of January, it's thinned out a bit, but it hasn't, so yay for people. But- and then go away. <laughs> like, don't pop on things. And I'm usually really good about wiping stuff down before and after, but I guess I didn't. I don't know.
0: Like I said, it's in the air. Coughing oh, and yeah. it's like it just sprays. It's just... Yeah. It's like one of those uh, air freshener things. It's almost on a time thing. <laughs>
1: Totally blame him. I called Zeke carrier monkey. and He's like, don't blame me. He's like, you go to the two most germ-infected places, like the grocery store and a cart and then the gym, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. Uh, although he said everybody at work was sick, so I'm still blaming him. Okay. When and now? Because he never gets sick. He's just a carrier monkey. He brings all the germs home to me, and then I get sick. Like, what's that movie with the monkey? Oh. Outbreak? Solid 90s. I think it was a 90s movie. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> and the monkey got everybody sick. Yeah. It was a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Good story, Keenan. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I guess it's fitting that I would be sick on the disease episode, though. So I guess I'm. Yeah, uh, on. if
0: anything, I just think you're uh, method acting. Yes. <laughs> well, shall we just jump on into it?
1: You should. I'm going to start with Morbid to just rip that band aid off. Yeah, might as well. There's just there's just like one sentence that I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) okay so we're going to be heading to New York City to an island that it's just got everything. It has smallpox, tuberculosis, typhoid, addicts, birds, explosions, leprosy, yellow fever, scarlet fever, which I've had, by the way, diphtheria, loss of death, etc., etc. That is why it's morbid. This Isle of Nightmare Fuel is called North Brother Island. It is about 22 acres large in the East River, hanging out less than a mile from Manhattan. And it sits between the South Bronx's industrial coast and the notorious prison Rikers Island Correctional Center. So, what a (laughs) view. And then I just really had to dig, because almost everything I was reading was just talking about this island post-European. You know, settlers. So I had to mm-hmm. really dig, and I finally found Angelina Jones from UPenn wrote her thesis on this and included the Native American aspect. So, yeah. The Lenape Native American tribe, also known as the Innie the Muncie and the Delaware, were traversing the East River as early as 1400 AD. It's the oldest of the Northeastern Alonquin. Oh, I Aling- oh, Alonquin. <laughs> uh algonquin that's it algonquin tribes and they moved through the territory from modern connecticut to delaware that included new york city before european contact this settlement was a tribe of hunters and gatherers and they also were you know badass fishermen because you know they were on the river but they mostly made canoes and then they navigated the rivers including hell's gate which i didn't know what that was and i figured out that it's a narrow like tidal straight in the East River that separates Astoria, Queens from the Randalls Island Ward Island. And it has a really strong tidal current and the current exceeds five knots, which apparently is very fast in semen <laughs> terms. And it also has heavy swirls and boils and a dog leg, which I also had to Google. And that means a very sharp bend. So, apparently, there's just, like, one spot that's really treacherous, and it's really dangerous, and it will fuck your shit up. Anywho, all that to say that these islands were most likely a resting point for the native fishers as they moved along the river, and there's no evidence that they settled there since they tended to cluster on the shores of the East River in the Bronx, Queens, and Manhattan areas, rather than the small islands. So, nobody really lived here. Until the first Europeans discovered it. And it was the Dutch West India Company in 1614. And they named the islands the... Oh, shit. I looked at this like a dozen times. The Gestle And uh, I hope I pronounced that right. But probably not. But in English, that translates to the brothers or companions, depending on how you read the source. And now they're the North Brother Island and the South Brother Island. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the North Brother Island and okay. the morbid shit. So, North Brother was purchased by the town of Mora located in the Bronx. Sorry if you're from New York. In 1871. And it was a home to a tuberculosis hospital built by the Sisters of Charity. The hospital was closed when the New York City acquired it in 1885 to build a new hospital for the treatment of infectious diseases. The diseases that were treated here varied as new germs invaded the city, including smallpox, typhoid, tuberculosis, measles, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and polio. A little bit of them all. (laughs) Many patients from the Renwick Smallpox Hospital on Roosevelt Island were relocated to North Brother once the new facility was built. A ferry located at 132nd Street in the Bronx transported staff, patients, and supplies to the island, but it remained very isolated. There was no telephone, no telegraph, nothing until 1894. Pretty much if you're sick, you're getting dumped at this island and there's no way to communicate with anybody. Which just seems like the beginning of a scary movie. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> it's like Shutter Island. What did you do? There were also dangers with transporting the sick patients in the winter. And much criticism was voiced after a six-month-old baby was infected with measles and then died en route to the island from all the cold and the water and the... Lots <sighs> of babies. It's very <laughs> sad. During the turn of the century, overcrowding was a huge issue when outbreaks occurred. Everyday medical instruments were in short supply and there weren't enough clean or sterilized properly between its frequent uses. That's so gross. Tents were used, there were not enough beds, and the cloth enclosures were precariously heated with wood-burning stoves during the harsh New York winters. So you're in a cloth tent, and then you got a wood burn. That's not enough heat. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then, shocker, uh, a lot of them would just end up in flames because cloth tent, wood-burn stove. This is <laughs> these these are things. I am I'm not that smart, but I'm smart enough to know that doesn't work. The hospital had about 1,200 people in its quarantine during the 1892 typhus outbreak. That's a lot of people. It oh, really is. Okay, here's the really bad one. Okay, so, brace yourself. <laughs> All right. On June 15th, 1904, the men that were on their way to work were on this barge along with a group from St. Mark's Evangelical, Evangelical Lutheran Church, uh, mostly women and children. <laughs> yeah. And They all boarded a passenger ship called the General Slocum. 1,000 tickets had been collected, but that didn't include 300 children under the age of 10 that didn't need tickets and the crew. So there was about 1,350 people on board the ship. Everybody was dressed to their best, and that'll be a tragic detail later. (laughs) Uh, Apparently it was a really beautiful day, and people were playing music, and they were dancing. And then during the voyage, the crew on the lower deck spotted smoke rising through the floorboards. They had never ran a fire drill before, and when they ran to try to grab the fire hoses, they were rotten and they just burst, like crumbled in their hands. And the life jackets were also rotten. The lifeboats were either tied down where they couldn't get them, or they were actually painted to the deck. So none of the lifeboats worked either. The captain continued his course into the wind instead of running the ship aground on North Brother Island. His reason, he said, was to avoid spreading the fire to the hospital or an oil tank on shore. But him going towards the wind actually fanned the flames and it made them even bigger. Many passengers who jumped were taken to the bottom of the river due to the heavy garments they were wearing. I remember they were dressed all nice. Yeah. And then the other ones were caught in the current of Hell's Gate that we talked about before. Those that stayed on board were consumed by flames or they were trampled. One woman gave birth during the mayhem and she hurled herself overboard with her newborn in her arms and they both died immediately. (gasps) So sad. Not the babies. Why are there so many babies? Why am I doing this myself? Okay. So the slogan was eventually beached on North Brother where patients with typhoid and other contagious diseases were being quarantined at that time. Staff tried to pump water to douse the flames. Nurses threw debris for passengers to cling to, while others tossed ropes and life preservers to the people. Some nurses actually dove into the water to ba- or like, pull the badly burned passengers to safety. In the end, the dead were lined up along the shoreline. An estimated 1,021 people died. There were only 321 survivors. It is the deadliest disaster to ever hit New York before 9-11. So sad. So uh, how do I come back from that? I don't. We're going to talk about Typhoid. I know. I'm just
0: thinking <laughs> to cause the the boat to crash lands instead mm-hmm. of driving to the wind. Like, I get the concept, but, like, which would have really been better? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand you don't want to cause an oil spill or, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever is closest to the land, depending on where he's going to crash. But mm-hmm. just trying to think of, like. Which would was this really the best solution? Was they
1: yeah, it was a perfect storm of just every worst case scenario all at the same time, like nothing working, nobody knowing how to do anything. The ropes, the fire hoses disintegrating, just literally everything. So safety checks are annoying but
0: necessary.
1: Necessary. And from a lot of things I read, was that it was. Overcrowded too. They had way too many people on the ship too. So it was just. Yeah. It's kind of like the Titanic. It was overfilled. They didn't have enough lifeboats. They didn't follow any safety measures. It's just really tragic.
0: And I, I think the saddest part is the the lifeboats and the hoses. In mm-hmm. fact, the hoses just were everything was rotted. Like yeah. you think you think those would be the few things you'd check before, but I guess. I guess you get too comfortable, like we'll, we'll be fine. We'll yeah, be right.
1: and with everything being rotted, it probably caught on fire so much faster too. Oh yeah,
0: just
1: dry That's, and everything. Ugh, poor people didn't stand a chance, and I've never heard of it before. It's like when horrible was this disaster. Again?
0: Uh, what was the
1: date?
0: Nineteen. Sorry, nineteen oh four. Okay, I will say on the other hand that that is impressive that. That was the greatest disaster until 9 Mm-hmm. I mean, not yeah. like that's a good thing, but I mean, 100 years of super huge disaster. Yeah. I mean, not saying the other bad things didn't happen, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of a city that scale, too. That I'm also thinking proportionately, too, of how many. Mm hmm. Like, how many live in New York like billions pretty much yeah (laughs) Yeah, there's There's a lot of people like like a third of the planet
1: (laughs) (laughs) everybody yeah there's a especially in this time there's a lot of people packed in there, especially like the Bronx and stuff they were they were pretty filled to the brim but I also think I really like that the nurses were like flinging themselves in the water to save lives too I think that's pretty cool
0: very valiant
1: yeah nurses are badasses they are So, this is also how, I'm surprised I didn't know about this island, because the most famous patient that lived in this island was Mary Malone, also known as Typhoid Mary. (laughs) Did not know. Mary was a carrier of typhoid, which means she had the disease, but she didn't have any symptoms or side effects, but she was able to pass it to others. She worked as a terrible job, if you're a carrier of a disease, but she was a cook. (laughs) And she worked at a lot of places in Manhattan and Long Island between 1900 and 1907, where she transmitted the infection to a number of people. So, a little historical detour here. Typhoid fever is a bacterial disease caused by salmonella typhi. Symptoms of typhoid range from mild to serious, and they usually develop one to three weeks after exposure. Uh, Symptoms are fever, headache, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, loss of appetite, and a rose-colored rash on the body. So, typhoid fever spreads from person to person via contaminated food or water. And it's a transmission, ugh, this is gross, transmission via the fecal oral route, meaning that contaminated feces, sometimes urine, uh, enters the water supply or food supply. So, as a cook, that means that she was transmitting this because she had either poop or pee on her hands as she's cooking food. It's so gross. Wash your hands, people, old-timey people
0: of the past. Wash your hands. And now, please. And always, yes. Just wash them. It doesn't, it's not hard. Just do it.
1: Some historians believe that typhoid fever was responsible for a widespread plague in Athens in 430 BCE, which proved to be fatal for one-third of the population, including the leader of the time, Pericles. His successor, oh god, I used to know how to say it. (laughs) Thucydides also contracted the same disease, but it did not prove fatal. Jamestown, an English colony in Virginia, is also thought by some historians to have died out as a result of typhoid fever. The fever proved fatal for more than 6,000 settlers between 1607 and 1624, and it may have been responsible for eliminating the entire colony. Uh, Military and war environments often have been subjected to the presence of typhoid fever throughout history, in an excess of eighty thousand soldiers died as a result of it or dysentery in the American Civil War. That is a lot of people. I mean I knew a lot of people died in the Civil War, but I didn't realize that, that many died from this alone.
0: Yeah. No, that's just wash your hands.
1: Yeah. And then likewise <laughs> the Spanish American War led to infections of typhoid both in the field and in the training camps. So anyway, historical detour over. But when six members of a wealthy banker's family, Charles Warren, uh, contracted typhoid fever while vacationing in Long Island's Oyster Bay in the summer of 1906, people lost their goddamn minds because at this point they thought the disease was like only in the slums and only poor dirty people had it. And they were like, Le gasp us fancy people have typhoid. What is happening? Mm-hmm. So they were concerned about the outbreak and he was upset because he thought that this would prevent him from leasing his summer house again. Oh, poor you. You little little rich man can't rent your house because of some typhoid. So he hired George Soper, Soper, a freelance sanitary engineer who had investigated other sources of typhoid fever outbreaks to determine the cause. Although everything from the house's plumbing to the local shellfish supply came up negative, he actually found the cause, it was Malone. The cook had worked for the Warrens weeks before the outbreak, and he researched her employment history and found that seven families for whom she had cooked for since 1900 had reported cases of typhoid fever, which had resulted in the infection of 22 people and the death of one girl.
0: Oh my gosh. It's
1: really sad. So doctors theorized that she passed along the germs by failing to vigorously scrub her hands before handling food. However, since the elevated temperatures necessary to cook food would have killed the bacteria, people were wondering how she could have transferred the germs. He found the answer in one of her most popular dessert dishes, ice cream with raw peaches cut up and frozen in it. That'll do it. Yeah, there was nothing there to kill it. So that's how it happened. In 1907, she was taken into custody by police officers and the health department gave her an ultimatum. Either have her gallbladder removed, which is where typhoid germs live, apparently, or be exiled to North Brother Island. She refused to have surgery, which was risky and unpredictable at that time. No shit. Yeah, I don't actually
0: blame her on that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So she was like, fine, I'm going. So then they placed her at the hospital for three years. She resided in a bungalow away from the main hospital buildings and lived alone except for her dog as her only companion, which is really sad.
0: Or an intro introvert's dream. Oh. I'm oh, like, true. like I'm kind of feeling half and half. I'm like that kind of <laughs> sounds like amazing. Like, just send me books, send me art supplies, and i will like, sure. And just give me a cat. Um, and then and yeah, and then every once in a while, I'm like, I kind of wish I had a friend. I guess I'll just read another chapter, and then and then I'll be fine again. Yeah. Well,
1: unfortunately, she did not enjoy it. So after a lengthy court battle where she described her life as a prisoner, she was released from the hospital in 1910. She wrote, why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only the only the loyalty of my dog for a companion? There is some speculation that William Randolph Hearst actually bankrolled her court case and helped her get released. So that was just like an extra fun fact. Yeah. But she immediately went back to work under the pseudonym of Mrs. Brown at Sloan Maternity Hospital. An outbreak of typhoid shockingly happened, and it consisted of 25 separate cases, which eventually traced back to the cook, and then they figured out that she was lying about her name, and that it was all typhoid Mary all along. She was sent back to North Brother Island, in 1915 to live the rest of her life there. She began working in the hospital in 1918. She became a nurse and then finally a lab assistant, but she suffered a stroke in 1933 and remained bedridden until she died on November 11th, 1938. In her entire life that they know of, she infected 47 people, three of whom died from the disease. But the whole time she's like, that ain't me. I've never been sick. I didn't do it. So the day she died, she's like, I didn't do shit. I don't know why you guys are all pissed
0: off. Not my problem. I know people like that. It makes <laughs> me so annoyed. <laughs> like, what's wrong? Like, you. You are. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been fine if she was just out and about. Like, she just lived a regular little life. But now she apparently just had to be a cook. Yeah. Or at least
1: cook everything you cook. Don't freeze peaches you have cut up with your dirty poop hands. So gross.
0: Especially when you get a second chance.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, come
1: on. Well, she's probably like, fuck you. I'm going to prove that it wasn't me. I'm going to do the same thing and you'll never know. And then they're like, no, we figured oh. it out. So, in 1943, a large tuberculosis pavilion was constructed on the island. The pavilion was rendered obsolete within a decade due to the increasing availability, availability acceptance and use of a vaccine after 1945. Following World War II, the passing of the GI Bill resulted in a shortage of housing for the city's colleges, and the building was actually used for a dormitory for a while. In 1952, in its final use, uh, it was a rehab center for serious cases of addiction. The idea was to get adolescents far away from overcrowded jails and hospitals filled with time-hardened criminals. The maximum stay on the island was only six months. The former TB pavilion was converted to treat a hundred boys and fifty girls, and they were placed there by their parents or by the court. New missions were bathed and searched for drugs, and then they were placed in observation wards as they went through withdrawal. The whole cold turkey thing. Uh, if symptoms were too bad, they were tapered off the drug over time. And then, uh, shocking again, programs like this. It was rife with corruption, and by 1960s, it was shut down. And by 1963, it was completely abandoned. So. Still abandoned today. Fun fact. The facility is said to have been the inspiration for the Broadway play Does a Tiger Wear a Neck which helped launch the career of Al Pacino. Oh. Random thing. Trivia That's night. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that really caught me off guard. Okay. <laughs> the island is still abandoned and filled with creepy ass ruins of the hospital. And uh, I'm sure they're like a thousand percent haunted. It is illegal to step foot on the island. And even it's, you know, smaller, less cool brother, South Brother Island. And if you think, well, Keena, challenge accepted. I'm going to go step a foot on the island. Don't do it because it's right next to Riker's Prison. And they do patrols and they will catch your ass. So (laughs) (laughs) apparently people try it all the time and they're like, no. So the city owns the island. So the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation manages the site as a bird sanctuary now. It has a variety of species, including a two foot long brown or black crowned night heron, which apparently was endangered. So the only thing on the island are some birds. According to the website, the only guests permitted are those with, quote, compelling academic and scientific purposes. And they have to fill out an application. And I don't think the podcast counts. (laughs) I don't think we're compelling enough. But uh. And last fun fact. In two thousand nine, North Brother Island was featured in episode eight of Life After People on the History Channel. It was used as an example of what would happen to structures after forty five years without humans.
0: I, what, I, I bet I bet nature would just take over. Yeah, and
1: it has. Like people haven't been there since the sixties, so it's like the really one of the only examples of what would happen if it's just no people at all. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, do you have anything to lighten this up? Since <laughs> I just murdered
0: a shit ton of children? <laughs> uh, Yeah, I have the stuff of nightmares. Oh, it's good. actually not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. But you can't blame me. You can blame Frankie. Because <laughs> he's the one that sent us the story.
1: Oh, good.
0: And it's pretty interesting. And I found this article all about it. So, chainsaws. know what do you think? <laughs> Take a turn. Okay. Let's go. That's why I'm like, it's the stuff of nightmares. Chainsaw. Uh, what do you think when you hear the word chainsaw or the phrase?
1: Well, since we're talking about diseases so much, I'm thinking like amputations. Am I close? Otherwise, I would. Yeah. You in the ballpark. Okay. Or trees. (laughs) (laughs) But then horror movies, you know, Leatherface. Apparently, that's an Airbnb where they filmed Texas Chainsaw down here. It's an Airbnb. No, no,
0: (laughs) no. I'm not. I don't accept that. (laughs) Just gonna repress that and never think about that again. Oh, that's a terrible detour. But so
1: that's loosely based on Ed Gein, and he's from Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and. We were talking about Texas Chainsaw. And he's like, you know, that happened in Wisconsin. I was like, yeah, it's the dude with the nipple belt. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I'm like, he made a belt out of nipples. And he's like, how do you know that? Nobody knows that. What is wrong with you? I'm like, I I I listen to a lot of podcasts. So he was not impressed by my knowledge of Ed Gein's nipple belt.
0: (laughs) No one needs to really know that.
1: (laughs) It stuck in my head. He had other things that I can't remember, but that one that burned in my head.
0: Is it because it's about nips?
1: I don't know. It's just such a random thing. Why would you make a belt out of that? Why? 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 Why?
0: I guess why not? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, chainsaws. I just got like a bad taste in my mouth. Like that is just awful. Like that's okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: like that's what that thinking about that does. Like oh. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Anyways. So here's a word I'm going to butcher. And it's symphysiotomy Sounds great to me. Tommy. I know I'm putting too much on a tommy. Because it's like otomy. Like simphysiotomy. Too much emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah. It's called southern. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's It's basically childbirth. And chainsaw was invented originally to help with childbirth. No! Yeah. No! Thank you, Frankie. Oh, God! But don't picture, which I'm sure you are, and I'm glad you did, because I wanted to give you that moment. <laughs> don't picture the engine running, huge gas guzzling or whatever it takes to power those things now. Uh, chainsaw. Think more like a little handheld Turkey Carver chainsaw.
1: Oh, that, that's not much better.
0: It's not, but it's like cuter.
1: It's <laughs> <That's> cuter.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Put a Hello Kitty on and everything's fine.
1: I don't need anything that needs to be revved up with little sharp teeth in my nether regions. No.
0: see <laughs> <laughs> T- <laughs> It's gonna it's gonna happen. Or at least back then it did happen. So I'm going to read a little bit from the article and it's before it became the horror movie murder weapon. And I find that very true. It was intended for childbirth, even though women had been birthing babies since the literal dawn of time. Childbirth in the late 18th century was still pretty messy because, you know, they didn't have anesthesia and the hospital, of course, wasn't hygienic because, you know, washing hands and clean water is important. The cannot today. Plus, human beings just weren't as healthy. You know, lifespans just weren't as long and just in general, health was not as good. We didn't, they just didn't have the medicine like we do now. So, because of all these things, anytime a woman came in with complications during labor, it would just be pretty much instant life threatening, which makes sense. With all that scenario, and if you're having complications, it's like, what the fuck, what do we do? So, of course, the go-to is a C-section. And at that time, especially, it was considered, like, a super high risk, especially for the mom. Oh, yeah. Because of infection, mostly. And so they had to go with some alternative methods. You know, like, maybe using a chainsaw. Oh, my God, every time we say that, it just... <laughs> I know, that's why I keep saying it. Perfect. <laughs> Reading on, it says popularized in fifteen ninety seven. Uh this method, the word that I have trouble pronouncing, was the preferred method quickly removing a child from a woman's womb was almost three centuries, though it is now thankfully almost and now it's by medical professionals, so we they don't really do that in the same style anymore. So during the procedure, a doctor would be would take a knife and separate the cartilage muscle that connects everything. <laughs> like it's so gross. <laughs> Instead of going into super technical, it basically he would cut the woman's pelvis in half.
1: Okay, that's what I was imagining when you said chainsaw. I was really hoping it wasn't that, but yes.
0: Yeah. Ugh. In the mid uh, 1780s, two Scottish doctors, John Aiken and James Jeffrey. I love that. <laughs> yeah, after now, Jeff, Jeffrey now Jeffrey. It's it's J E F F R A Y Jeffrey. Yes. <laughs> or very fancy Jeffrey. <laughs> so with Aiken and Jeffrey realized they that using a knife for this procedure was time-consuming and often inaccurate, excruciatingly painful for the patient. It's was like, hello. In an effort to improve the procedure for everyone, they created a device that would ensure more precision during the cutting
1: by oh, using place. a... Ch- they
0: like, no, no, we're doing this for you. you this know. is for you. No. Oh, and this, <laughs> in a sense, it was... Um, because it's quicker. So, I mean, would you rather have a hundred cuts or one?
1: I don't, I don't
0: know. No. I know it's... <laughs> done. i don't. I mean, I'm not having children, so just, uh-huh. you do you, man, you do you. In the <laughs> in the 1780s. <laughs> like... <laughs>
1: oh, let's imagine. It's, it's just, it just blows my mind that we still exist. Out of all the dumb shit people used to treat people with, and Oh, and all the unsanitary and all the weird ass medical equipment and treatments. How are we still here?
0: Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, so yeah, by using a chainsaw and enforced repetitive movements, so it was just more <laughs> quicker and whatnot. Oh my god. Yeah, initially the chainsaw consisted of a long chain with uh, serrated teeth, Oh, no. like like you do. <laughs> like- and a handle on each end, similar to a wire saw, the chain would be wrapped around the pelvic bone, and the doctor would alternate pulling each handle. Uh. The movements would slice through the symphysis. I don't know. I don't know medical stuff. I don't know <laughs> hardly anywhere. Um, anyway, it's some kind of medical stuff. It would slice through basically faster than a knife and with more precision. Eventually, a man named uh, Bernhard Hein improved their invention when he came up with something called an osteotome. Now powered by a hand crank rather than pulling, the serrated chain was looped around the guidance blade, which allowed it to rotate. So now we're thinking more like the chainsaw we know. And this allowed the doctor to hold the chainsaw, Pretty much just like you would a knife. So think you're a turkey carver, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and but it being a lot better <laughs> precision <laughs> with the serrated <serenity> oh. chain. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. The only reason I think this is better is just because of your reactions. <laughs> 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 it's worth it. Oh. Now, after anesthesia was popularized, the chainsaw's use in this was widely accepted and even encouraged due to its efficiency and eventually became widely used in other surgeries and dissections as well. So now we're getting into dissection, like taking off her limbs and whatnot. So around the turn of the century, however, this began losing support. A rise in hospital hygiene and general anesthesia made c section safer, and doctors realized that there was less risk of long-term complications. After all, recovering from a broken pelvis took a lot longer than recovering from a few stitches, and you were more likely to be able to walk after a C-section. Yeah, Jesus. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. However, though they were less useful for surgeries, a San Francisco-based logger realized they could be used for other, uh, <laughs> oh, use for felling giant redwood trees. You were kidding. Is this? Oh my god. He modeled his patent for the endless chain saw, and it's like I love that. It's endless chain saw It's three, three things on Hine's original plan, and I even I'll send you pictures for the device. And so he created a patent in 1905. From there, other inventors and logging companies tweaked it and remodeled it. And basically, that's how we have our chainsaw of today. How? How did a pelvic bone come before a
1: tree with a chainsaw? How did somebody look at a, a pelvic bone and be like, that needs a chainsaw? But nobody looked at a tree and was like, huh.
0: Uh, don't fix when I broke. An axe works pretty good. this i'm gonna send you the image of our terrible little friend
1: i can't imagine somebody oh my god that is the stuff of nightmares that's kind of
0: cute
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's a lot smaller than i was imagining
0: yeah it really is it's like a just like a slightly large cooking knife size yeah but with But, and it's even in that knife shape with a knife handle, but just imagine around a knife is a chain.
1: Okay, that's a lot less. My my brain was going places.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, that's one, that's part of the fun. And two, I mean, it, and again, it was as crazy as it is, it was safer than using regular knives and who knows if they could sharpen it as well as we do today too. Because, again, it's like, do you want 100 cuts, or do you want, like, two? Man. It's all just all a bunch of scary shit. I can't I can't even imagine. Oh, and so I wonder, like, how many women died in childbirth, or, or just trying to recover from that, too. That's what Ooh. I really want to know. Actually, I don't. That's why I didn't look it up, but I'm curious. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Frankie.
1: Thanks, Frankie, I think. For birth and nightmares. I, no, nobody wants to go back to those times. With, if you, you need know. surgery, you're glad for modern medicine. <laughs> Mm-mm. I know, and without back.
0: anesthesia.
1: Ugh. I'll never complain about anesthesia again because I hate it because I get nauseous. Yeah, I'm like the one person that I'm just barfing the second I wake up until like like two hours. I hate it, but now I'm like, oh, I didn't feel anything, so that's great. Basically, my favorite yeah. thing is my first surgery ever was they get you in the room, and I'm so awkward anyway. I'm like, This doesn't look like Grey's Anatomy, and they're like, Okay. And then they're like, What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? I'm like, Well, I just painted my dog's head on Napoleon's body, and that was right when they put me under. And I'm like, They probably had follow up questions, but <laughs> so I was just like,
0: Out. So <laughs> I make it weird. Yeah. I don't have anything else to add to this because. That's nightmare fuel enough. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. So I'm going to wrap this up with my historical.
1: I'm going to, I'm making this all about me. It's about, but not really. It's about autoimmune diseases. And I actually learned a lot. Yeah, it's about me. But I learned a lot and I was really shocked. So an autoimmune disease is a condition where your immune system mistakenly attacks your body. It's like a real fucked up whoops situation. (laughs) Like. Whoops, sorry. Immune system is like a little bitty army that stands guard against germs, bacteria, and viruses. And when it senses a foreign invader, it sends out your little army and the little fighter cells attack them, you know. But normally when your immune system can tell the difference between the foreign cells and your own cells, you know, they're doing their job. But if you have an autoimmune disease, the immune system is like an army of the village people you see in movies that don't know how to hold a stick let alone like a sword, and then somebody comes in <laughs> and is like, I'm going to teach you how to, you know, I'm going to make a man out of you and teach you how to fight. Well, then they never learn. So they're just like the dumb little army people. So these little fighters just fight everything. They don't even try to differentiate the germs from, say, your kidney. So to them, it's all the same. More scientific terms, they mistake part of your body as a foreign object, and then they release proteins called autoantibodies that attack healthy cells. My immune system be dumb, y'all. It's not (laughs) smart. Uh, Some autoimmune diseases target one organ, like type 1 diabetes damages the pancreas. And then other diseases, like my fun combo, just affects the entire body. So, just depends on what you got. Uh, So, for context, the National Institute of Health, or NIH, estimates that there are more than 80 kinds of autoimmune diseases known right now. Women get autoimmune diseases at a rate about 2 to 1 compared to men. And then some autoimmune diseases like RA, lupus, multiple sclerosis are more common in women of Hispanic, African-American, and Native American descent. And then these diseases are also among the most common causes of death of all women under 65, which is also kind of scary to think about.
0: It is. (laughs) I'm like, that's kind of terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of people. Yeah
1: certain autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and lupus run in families that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna have it but you'll be a carrier and sometimes it takes a trigger to trigger it in somebody so like in my family we all carry the the susceptibility susceptibility to it like i got it but my sister didn't you might have it but you're not necessarily gonna get it (laughs) And then other risk factors include environmental triggers, such as viruses, bacterias, and perhaps nutritional factors. Uh, research in the last decade has suggested that B cells, which is a kind of a white blood cell, might have a strong influence in the development and progression of certain autoimmune diseases. So in my case, I wasn't sick until I lived in a house with mold. And then after I got sick from mold, I was never the same. So I had RA as a kid. I had JRA. And then I grew out of it because sometimes you just never have it again. But I developed a second kind of RA as an adult after living in the house of mold. It's really fucked up. <laughs> anyway, so according to NIH, up to 23.5 million Americans—that's more than 7% of the entire population of the USA—suffers from an autoimmune disease, and they're saying it's rare, like rising at a like astronomical rate and they're saying like 2034 they're expecting it to go up like 37 percent. it's crazy That's and it's crazy. the yeah it is the third most common disease after cancer and heart disease
0: all right definitely did not know that one
1: yeah it's wild
0: damn
1: and for many people living with an autoimmune disease it can take several years and visits to multiple doctors for, to get a diagnosis so usually it's Anywhere between five to eight years, typically on average, to get diagnosed. Uh, it took 12 years for me to get the actual diagnosis. I was misdiagnosed three times. So uh, nine doctors, 12 years, three misdiagnosis, and like the medical debt. Me personally, and that's average. So I'm completely average, and it's horrible. Early symptoms for most autoimmunes are fatigue, joint pain, muscle pain, fever, and weight changes. Other symptoms depend on which part of your body is impacted. And some of the symptoms are non-specific, and many patients are misdiagnosed. And to make things even worse, a lot of the time symptoms don't appear in these diseases until you're in the advanced stage, and then you have irreversible damage already done. Early diagnosis and treatment can stop severe damage and help, you know, organs and tissues be safe, and some people can actually go into remission. So it's not all doom and gloom. And then Just treatment... Imagine. So, now for some history. Yay, because that's why we're here. Autoimmune diseases have been around as long as humans have. There have been skeletal remains from thousands and thousands of years ago that prove that they have one. (laughs) Oh, sorry.
0: (laughs) Wrong wrong answer. My bad.
1: So, they prove that they existed, but they weren't quote-unquote discovered until much, much later. And I'm talking like, this dude died in 1983, that puts that in context. This has always been around, but nobody put a name to it till 1950s. Um, oh, wow. so yeah, so this guy's named Henry George uh, Kunkel and he's the father of immunopathology. And he was the first to discover a variety of abnormal immune relationships in people with RA and other autoimmunes. And he laid the groundwork for studies in autoimmune disorders in the fifties. <laughs> that just blows my mind. So, like I said in the beginning, I'm going to make this about me. So, I have a thing called Mixed Connected Tissue Disorder, or MCTD, with overlapping rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which is a real mouthful. But uh, MCTD is a term that is characterized as an individual disease in 1972. And it's a diagnosis that combines features of multiple diseases like scleroderma, my- myositis, lupus RA, and then a bunch of other stuff. So, it's basically an overlap syndrome. So I have RA and lupus, but they overlap symptoms. Since I love history, I found it kind of fitting that I have one of the oldest diseases known to man, RA. So the rest of this is going to be about RA, because we don't have part of
0: history inside of you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So the Egyptians, Macedonians, and Greeks all have like remains that were found and studied in the 19th and 20th centuries by Egyptologists that proved they had articular lesions with. Ebernations of bone which I had to google and that means signs of degenerative processes in the bone and those all suggest that they have RA so bones from like forever have all had signs of it and then they've also found symmetrical polyarticular erosive arthritis consistent with RA in Native American remains that date from as far back as 4500 BCE that's a long ass time ago in 1500 BCE, the Ebers papyrus described a condition that is similar to RA, which is probably the first written reference to this disease. G. Eliot in his studies found that RA was a very prevalent disease among the Egyptians. In Indian literature, the Shirak Samhita, written around 300-200 to 200 BC, describe a condition with joint pain, uh, swelling, and loss of joint mobility and function, as well as other symptoms of RA. In the Ayurvedic medical texts from 123 AD refer to the same symptoms with an added occasional fever, which ma- like matches the rheumatic fever. That's part of RA. I cannot talk. And there, <laughs> man, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, was quoted saying, It is incredible how fast the mischief spreads. More than 2,300 years ago, referring to a condition in arthritic nature with the onset occurring in the mid-30s, Affecting first the hands, the feet, followed by the elbows, the knees. And spoiler alert, he's talking about RA. Medieval European physicians, which I'm so glad I never had to deal with, attributed joint maladies to a flux of congested humors, which you know Caden talked about last episode. And they believed that bad humors dripped into the affected joints, and that's what caused RA. <laughs> so gross. Despite all this ancient evidence of RA, the first formal evidence appears in 1591 by French physician, uh, oh god, French, Guillaume de Bayou, who applied an age-old term rheumatism to the condition characterized by swelling, stiffness, and you guessed it, pain. It has been hypothesized that there was an increase in these conditions associated with post columbian Europe. Tobacco is a known risk factor for the development of RA, and it was introduced to Europeans from the New World. And furthermore, changes in gastrointestinal microbiomes occurred because all the different populations were coming in contact with each other and it was messing up stuff. So they think autoimmune diseases were worsened because of that. In the year 1800, the dissertation of Augustin Jacob Landre Beauvais, such a long name, gave the first description of RA, which was also acknowledged by modern medicine. He was just 28 years old, and he was a resident working in an asylum in France. In 1852, Sir Alfred Garraud renamed the condition rheumatoid arthritis, and he was the first one to separate it from osteoarthritis and gout. Uh, there's a lot of history on this, so I'm just gonna fast forward to the evolution of treatments from like yikes to like oh hey I take that. So <laughs> we're gonna begin with the classic bloodletting and leeching. Oh, God <laughs> damn. I just don't know. <laughs> it's just...
0: A like, like, why do you get inspired by that? I mean, I mean, I don't know how that thought, like, let's do this. I really would like to meet that person that started that.
1: Yeah, well, they thought the humors were, like, dripping, so I guess they thought that the leech would just suck it out before it leaped into your yeah. joint.
0: Maybe if you had, maybe you had a snake bite and you had poison. Sure.
1: Maybe. They had no real concept of how the human body works.
0: We have no concept. (laughs) Remember, their (laughs) uteruses
1: were just floating around, banging into shit. They had no, they, no, no honeys. It was not good. So you fast forward to Hippocrates, and he treated pain associated with RA with willow, like the tree. And he used the plant extract of willow bark and leaves, and they claimed that it gave them a lot of pain relief. So, yay, medical improvements leaching to trees. Yeah, whatever. Some people still take that today. So, that's, that's like I Yeah, willow bark
0: I am like, yeah, actually yeah, using that as a tea even to
1: help mm-hmm. with aches stuff. so.
0: Yeah. And then salicylic acid in
1: 1929 was identified as an active substance that could ease pain by Henry Leroux, a French chemist. And then in 1897, 1897 <laughs> the chemist Felix Hoffman, working at the German company Bayer, was like, hey, your salicylic acid tastes like shit. And then he made a more palatable form, the acetylsalicylic acid or aspirin, which yeah. is rapidly became, you know, a treatment for various forms of arthritis I would argue that it still tastes like shit, so what? I don't know what it tasted like before if they thought that tasted good compared to the <laughs> Nobody likes the taste of aspirin. So gross. To this day, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which is what they're called now, are widely used to treat pain arising in arthritis. NSAIDs. And then injectable gold was used as a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, or DMARD, in the 1930s. Which my mom used to take gold shots and it never occurred to me there was actual gold in them. I just thought it was like a weird acronym. But anyways, yeah, my mom has RA too. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before. but Runs and families. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> gold showed some success with years of years and it is still a component in a number of DMARDs used today. Sulfasalazine was developed in 1930s by rheumatologists in Sweden, which I just stopped taking that one and hydro oh god hydro <laughs> i am Great. on this drug i can't even say it it's an anti-malarial drug and they figured out that it had a remittive agent for RA in the 1940s so you know
0: how i
1: don't know they developed it for malaria and then they realized that it was stopping people's joint pains and they're like oh hey and then they Started giving it to lupus and RA people. So that was the first drug they put me on. It's also right. called Plaquenil. It's, <laughs> that's the I really other can't region. help.
0: Do what? Oh, I was like, I don't remember what I was saying. What you saying? <laughs> 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 well, I was just going to say, I really can't help but admire the doctors. You know, when we got past, like, bloodletting, we actually <laughs> started doing some real shit. I can't help but admire, like, What they discovered on what little was there because I feel like technology now, yes, we are, it's still a challenge to solve and cure what we have to deal with still Mm -hmm. as far as disease, diseases. But at least now we have computers and technology to really help us with this. While back then it just blows my mind that we were able to solve anything. Yeah. And it,
1: it's still fun like a lot of these were accidents and somebody saw like somebody with malaria and realized that that treated something else and because of that they're able to treat RA and lupus like that's amazing to me it's, crazy. Yeah, it's like penicillin with mold right? yeah, yeah. or what was it uh, oh there's another weird drug crap what's the one for boners that was developed for heart people <laughs> Why is it always dicks? I don't know, but I remember they, they developed it for heart disease. Uh, Viagra? Yes. Yeah, that was developed for heart attacks. Man, medical stuff.
0: <laughs> well, and I just love that we're like, people are, you know, autoimmune disease, dicks. Like, yeah. this is how how yeah. we roll. Welcome to historical life, <laughs> <AF> people.
1: <laughs> uh, anyway. In 1950, a Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was awarded to Philip Hinch and Edward Kendall. And they were working at the Mayo Clinic. And they were the first ones to take a compound E from your adrenal gland and create corticosteroids. Like, how would you even know how to do that? Like, they just figured out that you could take something out of your adrenal gland and make a steroid. So, like, every time you go to the doctor and you're sick and they give you a shot in the ass of steroid, this is what that is. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, that's a fun fact i did not need it <laughs> but I, I i'll take it all right
1: yeah <laughs> so they started they started training people and then they realized that there was some like really bad side effects so that's why you can't take that much steroids because you have yeah, a lot yeah. of which an not so fun fact I know people bitch about medical care now, but it used to be way worse. So when my mom got sick, I was seven. So that was like 90 something and old and she couldn't afford like really good treatment. So they put her on steroids and they put her on it so long that it killed her adrenal gland. So now she can't stop taking steroids. So she's been on steroids for like almost 30 years (laughs) and she'll die if she stops taking it. But yeah, they're really bad for you. So now every time she goes to a new doctor and she tells them, they're just like, holy shit, that's not right. So anyway, it was really bad for people to take steroids. They developed like Cushing's Cushing's syndrome. And then they did realize that while it gave relief to joint pain, it didn't actually stop damage. So then they're like, well, we got to do something. In 1980, there was considerable strides being made. Chemotherapy was developed in 1950, but in 1980, they developed methotrexate, which is a low-dose chemo that actually stopped the progression of the disease, and then from there, they've been able to create other DMARDs, and I'm on one called Amaran, so I'm like on an offshoot of methotrexate. And then the last one are targeted biological therapies for inflammatory diseases, and they came around the 1990s. So they basically synthesized a drug from a biological source. So when you see commercials that are like Humira, and embryo, that's that's what that is. They're called biologics. Um, and then just like a little fun fact to end with, RA is depicted in Peter Paul Rubin's painting of the Three Graces. So like in the hands, they're all deformed and stuff from severe RA. Lucille O'Ball had RA when she was a teenager. She had severe flare-ups that kept her from walking. Once her pain was controlled, she moved to Hollywood and became the first lady of television. And I have read sources that said, like, in between takes, she would lay down in a room and put, like, a washcloth on her face and just kind of, like, lay there and then just turn it on and then be hilarious. I can't imagine being in that much pain and being that funny. It's crazy. Pierre-August Renoir, he was a pioneer impressionist painter, and he developed RA, and in his later paintings, he couldn't even hold his paintbrush anymore, so they just taped him to his hand. (laughs) Like he was so committed that he was like, Fuck it, just tape it. You got
0: this. Yeah. So. Uh, just do do what you can.
1: <laughs> oh man. And then just to end it on so an autoimmune disease is an invisible disease. So anybody that has it, you can't see it. So I look completely fine all the time. I might be like dying inside, but I look fine. And there's like things people say to you. And they say it to everybody and I asked it, I'm in a support group on Facebook and I asked people, I'm like, what's the one thing that people say to you all the time that you're like, please stop. So they made me a list and it, and it got long, but I'm going to try to sum it up. But I will add that when you do get sick with something, it's like the stages of mourning. So at first you're like in denial, like, Oh, there's nothing wrong with me. And then you're pissed off. Like, why is this me? And then you get like bargaining, like I'll do anything if I'm healthy and blah, blah, blah. And then you're depressed for a while and then you just accept it. So now I think it's funny. But when you're like in the earlier things, people get kind of really upset when they hear these things. Now I'm just like, come on, man. So the number one's like, but you don't look sick. It's not a good look. You're still sick? That one sucks. If you lost weight, you'd feel better. That's the way to get punched in the throat. Try apple <laughs> cider vinegar. How about some coconut oil? Essential oils. Cut out the meat. Don't eat gluten. Don't forget the turmeric. Do a yoga and chug some green tea. Uh It's all in your head. Mind over matter. Have you tried exercising? Drink more water. You're young. You shouldn't be in this much pain. You don't have arthritis. That's for old people. I had arthritis and took a high dose of antibiotics for two weeks, and now I don't have it. You should try that. You look so tired. You move pretty good for someone with a handicap sticker. Vitamins really help. You shouldn't be taking medication. It's bad for you. You look (laughs) fine. I don't see how you're in pain if you look this fine. You don't look, or you don't know what pain is. Wait till you're my age. Oh, you're one of those people that looks at WebMD and thinks you're dying. (laughs) Oh, you look good today. You must be all better, right? Have you tried praying about it? Oh, Jesus, people. Wow, it's always something with you, huh? Yeah, I've heard that a few times. Uh, I know someone with your condition and they can just work and function just fine. It could always be worse. At least it's not cancer. You're being dramatic and I could never deal with an illness like that. So this came from Ashley, Daniela, Blair, and then all my other friends from my support group, which I promised I would mention. So if you know somebody with an autoimmune disease, maybe not say those things. And for the most part, like I said, I've had it for so long, I'm fine. Like, I have it under control. I'm on lots of good drugs. Good days, bad days, all that. But yeah, I learned a lot. I didn't
0: know about the history of some of the stuff. And, uh, yeah. I love the assumption of the exercise, more water. <laughs> yeah. Uh, diet and stuff. Like, even though I'm chunky, I'm a curvy person, and I'm vegetarian, people continue to tell, sometimes will tell me, like, do you get enough protein? <laughs> do you get, uh, or like, do I know how to diet? And like, you know, just like the, you don't look like a girl that don't eat meat. I'm like, well, Look, I don't eat meat, but I like cake, too, it! but I'll eat a salad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, no. I, I just want it both, okay?
1: Yeah, people are very... And that's why I get so frustrated. Like, my doctor in Little Rock just kept saying, you just got to lose weight. and You need to work out more. And I'm like, I do work out. And I was like, I'm just in so much pain all the time.
0: And well, then did you go to a dermatologist, though,
1: too? Oh, no, I went to everybody. I went to... Okay. Uh, I went to a rheumatologist in Little Rock. I went to my PCM and then I I saw a dermatologist too because lupus gives you a rash. But um, yeah, I saw a bunch of different people and they all kind of were just like, eh. But it's because my blood work was at the very high of normal and it wasn't reg- like they were like, oh, you're fine. You're in the normal range. But because most ranges don't take in consideration a lot of factors and stuff. So my doctor here was like, yeah, you're one thing, like my sed rate's really, really, really high, and my C-reactor protein's really, really, really high, but my rheumatoid factor was low. So they're like, oh, you can't have RA, but it's all very complicated. I really liked out the doctor that I got here, just being, because I'd never heard about mixed connective tissue disease in my entire life, so but yeah. I'm doing really well because whenever I moved down here, stress makes things worse. And with the move and grad school, it was really bad. And like my left hand, I couldn't straighten out. And now I can almost straighten out completely. So it's getting much better. My little, my grandma hands are getting better. <laughs> now it's just my middle finger it doesn't straighten out completely. It just Damn, doesn't. that's the best one. I know. <laughs> on good days, that's what I was saying the other day. I'm like, oh, look, it straightened out. It feels so good. Now I'm, I'm sick.
0: Great. it's great it's great but yeah my little history on me is i didn't know a lot of it so it also makes me think of my cousin he has degenerative arthritis on his ankle and he is only 30 and he's had this arthritis since he was 20 mm-hmm. so and kind of the same like it his ankle looks fine and people won't know that he's in a lot of pain. His medicine brings out his immune system, so he has pneumonia like every other year, and when mm-hmm. he has that, it's almost like death, basically because mm-hmm. his immune system's so low. and I don't know how much lash he ever gets he and he's a chef, so he just he's on his feet like twelve hours a day. Oh no. I, I mean, you he, you he might pity, but he it's his choice though. Yeah, he, yeah. He refuses to do anything else, and his he wants to eventually run and own his own restaurant. But when that until that happens though, he's gonna work himself to death. He's like, I'm gonna keep working until I can't anymore, and then I'll try to just run the place. I'm like, okay, yeah, makes sense. And I know in my
1: like my mom too. When you've been in pain for so long, you push it back, and it's like it's. It's like white noise in the background. And for the most mm-hmm. part, you can ignore it. So that's probably how he is. Like, it's always there, but he can probably push through unless you're having a flare or something, then you can't push through those. But Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the people that I was talking to, was like, well, maybe people will just be kinder if they just think about
0: in a... Yeah, people don't think.
1: No. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I was sick. Like, they didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was so sick. And I had a handicap sticker and I couldn't walk. And I was going into Walmart and I parked in the handicap because I couldn't walk and had a cane and I was like hobbling along and I came back and there was a letter like cussing me out, calling me like, you dumb bitch, you're going to burn in hell. Why would you park here? You don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, man, (laughs) but they're like, you look fine. I'm
0: like, okay. So yeah, people are really mean. But I have an uncle who has had his fingers cut off and then reattached. Or, yeah, different stories. That's what's <laughs> funny. Is that it wasn't like one saw blade knocked half of them off. It was like dumbass, dumbass move, dumbass move. Like, not all dumbass moves, but they were different occasions. Anyways, he actually potentially could have a parking sticker, especially at the grocery store, because carrying heavy bags or something, he's not really supposed to keep a lot of weight on his fingers for a long period of time. But he ref- he refuses to do that because he didn't want an old man yelling at him. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's true. I got I got carded one time. A cop <laughs> came up. Cause yeah, it puts it on your life in Arkansas at least. I don't know how every state is, but my license says disabled persons on the back, and you have paperwork that goes with your placard. And I had somebody ask for him one time. I was like, Are you kidding me? And yeah, it really sucks. And then, fun fact, they never take it off your license. So once I got a little better and I was like, can I take this off? They're like, no. My license still says disabled person. Milk
0: it. <laughs> That's what I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, I try not to. I know people have a lot of worse. But there is day. Everybody has bad day. But it's, uh... You always look for the more good days than bad. But, uh... I like to pretend I don't have anything wrong with me, so... This will be the one time I talk about it a lot, and then I'll be done. <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> yeah. you, you mentioned that, it like every, you mentioned it on like every other episode. No. Oh, this isn't oh. the only time. God, well, I'm but always a okay. doctor. Yeah.
1: It sucks, but it's fine. It's part of my life. But anyway, hope you guys enjoyed, uh, diseases part two.
0: I learned a lot. I know, I did, yeah. And chainsaws, man. Where they have, started. I'm gonna have nightmares. <laughs> Thanks, Frankie. That's I why know. you did it, too. You knew it. <laughs> and I'm so glad we have C-sections that we know of today versus that whatever fucked up method. Whatever it's called. Symphotomy. Oh. Symphosomny. Something like Ouch. that. Ouch.
1: That just sounds so painful.
0: I know. Breaking your pelvis. Goddamn. In know. half. <laughs> Oh, how do, how do you walk after that? You don't. You don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Jeez. That's
1: That's awful. No thanks. All right. Oh, we have a shout out this week. We uh, have a new Patreon, a new Majestic AF, and it is Monica. She is a fellow Arkansan, and she does a photography that posts in the speakeasy.
0: Oh, really cool. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. If you're on our speakeasy, look out for her post because she does little little photography packages.
0: Shout out to Monica. I'm so glad you're with us. Yes. Hope you're still with us after this episode of crazy <laughs> diseases and chainsaws. God damn. Yes, and
1: also if you want to join Patreon and be cool like Monica and be entered in to win our contest, that's patreon.com slash historical have Fun.
0: Do it.
1: Do it right now because it's amazing we have so yeah. much cool stuff i know this week alone we got everything going up we got book chats we got the art history episode we got deleted scenes bloopers drunk dive like everything's going up this week so
0: it's a good God, time yeah i know
1: there's a lot of stuff it's gonna be email after email guys
0: notification sorry, sorry sure. not sorry <laughs> yeah good times and of course if you would like you feel free to check out our social media of course instagram twitter and facebook at historical af and of course send us your stuff like when we ask her a question it's not rhetorical this is demands mm-hmm. and we need <laughs> feedback this is we're we're getting data okay <laughs> this is an experiment and y'all are our guinea pigs yeah please and um and so you can send us your emails and at historicalaf at gmail.com and we want you know what's happening in your hometown or what has happened i shouldn't say is it spooky or is it just weird or do you want to say i live here find stuff out that's all good because we like to we need to discover new things we have yeah. ADD oh yes yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so much Wait,
1: did you say historical AF? Yeah, historical AF pod at Gmail. Oh, excuse me. Yeah.
0: It's the, is everything historical AF except for? No, everything's pod. Historical AF pod? Uh huh. Everything, yeah. Okay. Historical AF pod at all of our major. Well, we're historical AF. I just forget the podcast part because that's just kind of extra. Yeah. Like, it's obvious. So, yeah, just, four episodes ago, whenever it was correct, just use that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode with another awesome
0: guest. I know. I'm super excited. <laughs> Me, too. I'm not going to spoil it, but we're, we're finally going to talk to someone that I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited about the topic. So, yeah, it's going to be a good one. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay, bye. Bye, Z.